Greetings and welcome to A Voice for the Voiceless, a podcast about endangered species. I'm your host, Jenny Sisler, coming to you from Sunderland, Massachusetts on Monday, February 20th, 2023 at 9.52 a.m. Fortunately for me, because I work in the legal profession, we get all the federal holidays off and today is President's Day here in the United States. So I thought I would record this early enough that I can get it done and posted before 9 or 10 o'clock tonight, like I usually do on Mondays. Um, And speaking of, I'm sure you wonder where I've been the past couple weeks. Um, Well, long story short is, first weekend of the month, Bill and I went to Burbank for a charity fundraiser. And it was the week that there was that ice storm in Texas. Um, And it 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 screwed everything up. We were supposed to leave Thursday and get to Burbank by like 12.30 Pacific time. And that got all jacked up. We didn't get there till almost 10 o'clock at night. Um, and what happened was we were supposed to fly from Hartford, Connecticut, down to Dallas, and then across to Burbank. But with the minute amount of ice they got in Texas, it shut everything down. So they rerouted us later in the day from Hartford to Philadelphia across to LAX, which was interesting because we had done two one-way tickets because it was the only way we could schedule things to get Bill back in time for work on Monday. So the one flight got really screwed up. And in fact, when we got to Philadelphia, I got so mad because the gate that we were leaving from to go to LA was right next to one that was leaving to go to Dallas and at that point in the day everything was fine and on time but I'm very well aware of the fact that ice in Texas like a quarter of an inch is a bad thing there now living in Massachusetts I can say we don't deal with ice any better than anyone anywhere else does and ice is actually much worse than snow but it still did piss me off because we missed the whole reason we were going on Thursday night But, um, so we managed to be in absolutely fabulous, glorious, sunny Southern California, 70 degrees when it was record-breaking wind chills here. Here in Western Massachusetts, we reached a minus 37 wind chill and the uh, tallest mountain in the region is Mount Washington, which is in New Hampshire. And they recorded a record-breaking minus 111-degree wind chill. And that's the worst it's ever been since they started recording uh, weather on Mount Washington. So we managed to escape that. But Mother Nature just was like, well, we didn't. I don't want you to miss a thing while you're out there in sunny California. So when we got back on the 5th, I was taking our luggage into the bedroom. And I noticed a dark spot on the floor. And I'm like what is this? This is like out of a horror movie. Where did this come from? And then I walked around the other side of the bed and water just started oozing up out from under the carpet. And it was much worse on my husband's side of the bed. And I couldn't even fathom the amount of gallons of water that were under the the, uh, carpeting at that point. And at first I couldn't remember because I was like, well, wait a minute, where'd the water come from? Because our kitchen sink pipes were fine, our pipes in our bathroom were fine, and if 
our washer dryer pipe had broken. It would have flooded out towards our living room, not back into the bedroom. So I couldn't figure it out. And I thought maybe there was a burst pipe in the wall or something, or maybe someone up above us had a burst pipe that had come down the wall and had, had flooded our apartment. But I totally forgot the way our heater works. We have a baseboard radiator. So we just legit have one long copper pipe that's probably 60 years old running all the way around the baseboard in our bedroom. And one of those pipes broke and flooded the bedroom. And of course, it shows you how uneven the foundation is in this apartment because it all ran down towards my husband's side of the bed. So we managed to stay here Sunday night, but we had to be... That Monday the 6th, we had to stay at a hotel, and we didn't get back into the apartment until the end of the week. And so last week, I was just in no shape to record a podcast. And so here we are. Uh, we're somewhat dried out, but it stinks to high heavens in here, and I've got a request in for carpet replacement in the bedroom because I don't want to be breathing in black mold anytime soon. Uh, so it remains to be seen if they'll do it, but... Anyway, so that's where I've been. That's my life in a nutshell for the month of February. Um, but I did want to share a very special uh, animal with you today that's dear to my heart because of recent events in my life that have helped me really fall in love with horses. And, of course, an endangered horse is the Shavalsky's horse. So... Um, of course, you know, as much as I love horses and as excited as I was to hear that one has been successfully born in captivity at the San Diego Zoo, um, I decided that that would be the subject for this uh, new podcast. Um, Shavalsky's horses, they're quite, quite interesting. Um, so first, I'll give you a little bit of um, information about them and then of course as my usual layout is then we'll discuss why they're endangered and what's being done to help uh, preserve them. So if you saw a Shavalsky's horse at the San Diego Zoo you would think it was a pony um, but it's actually a full-grown horse but they're very small uh, compared to domesticated horses that we've all seen and that I've ridden and things like that. Uh, they tend to stand only 12 to 14 hands tall which is between 48 and 56 inches. So I'm taller at five foot two than a Shavalsky's horse. So that really, that strikes me as absolutely amazing because the horses I ride are all much taller than me. Uh, the horse I learned to ride on was a quarter horse and he was closer to, to like maybe five, seven, five, eight. Uh, he was 16.2 hands tall. Um, and he weighed close to a thousand pounds, um, but a Shavalsky's horse only ever weighs between 440 and 770 pounds. Um, and like I said, they're shorter than I am. Uh, so that's very interesting. And if you ever, as an aside, have a chance to talk to someone who owns a horse or see a horse up close, ask the rider or the trainer to show you the horse's chestnut. Um, a chestnut is kind of the equivalent of a dog's dew claw because it's a vestigial remain of like a hoof or part of the uh, horse's toe. 
for lack of a better word for it. And uh, if you look at a modern horse, a domesticated horse, the chestnut is a good five, six inches up the leg. So that shows you just how much we work to domesticate horses because they were all at one point when they were all wild about the size of a Chevalsky's horse, which is tiny. So it's just kind of interesting to think of the comparison uh, between a Chevalsky's horse and a domesticated horse of any breed. Um, or maybe it's just me because I'm into riding now. I don't know. It could be that too. Um, the Chevalsky's horse is also called a Taki which is the Mongolian word for spirit. Um, Mongolians, their whole lives revolve around horses uh, to this day. In fact, I saw that one of the 2022 National Geographic uh, Photographers of the Year won the award for taking this absolutely incredible picture of a Mongolian on horseback hunting with an eagle. And that's just, I would say... The two groups of people on the planet who are most tied to horses are the Polish and the Mongolians. And both groups of people practically come out to shoot on a horse. So, yes, for the Mongolians, they call these horses Taki because they feel that they embody the spirit of the wind. And it's a very spiritual connection the Mongolians have to horses. Um, not much is known about how they actually really do behave in the wild, in the wild because of they went nearly extinct in the wild in the 70s. So any of the observations of the herd have been made after they've been reintroduced into national parks. But from what scientists gather, uh, the mares and foals live in family groups with one dominant stallion. Um, and in fact, they call these groups harems. Um, and the younger stallions live in bachelor groups and the young stallions are allowed to breed if they can defeat the dominant stallion in a fight. Um, and then once the young reach breeding age, I suppose it's probably an evolutionary trait to protect the genetics of the species, but they are kicked out of the herd and they have to go live in a bachelor herd. Um, so... Those observations are primarily made from what people have seen over the past few decades when they've been re-released into the wild. Uh, so there's definitely more studying that needs to be done on Chevalsky's horses and their, their traits. Uh, but that's what scientists know so far about them. Uh, they used to range from Eastern Europe all the way to Asia, but now they're only found in Mongolia, China, and Kazakhstan. And, <coughs> excuse me. Um, they're the only true wild horses on the planet. Um, I know we think of like the uh, Chincoteague Island horses and the horses in the Outer Banks of the United States. And there are groups of quote unquote wild horses in Australia, but they're not wild. They're just feral domesticated horses because like the whole um, lore and legend around the uh, Chincoteague Island horses is that Spanish galleons who were coming to America in the 1600s shipwrecked and the horses were strong enough to get to shore and their descendants are the ones that still live on the island today. Uh, but the Chevalsky's horses are truly wild. They have never been able to be domesticated. Um, but the interesting thing is they can breed with domesticated horses. Um, in fact, the only way, and I saw this on the Smithsonian website, they have 66 sets of chromosomes where domesticated horses only have 64. 
Um, they can reproduce with domestic horses, and when they do, they create a horse that looks just like a Chevalsky's. So you have no idea now whether you're looking at a hybrid or an actual full-blood Chevalsky's horse unless you do a genetic test and count the chromosomes. Um, so I'm sure you're wondering why they're called a Chevalsky's horse. Now, knowing what I know about the poles and their connections to horses, I was like, Chevalsky was, this horse was named after a pole, not a Russian. But, and I was part right. He was a, a pole who lived in Russia and was well known as an explorer. And his name was Nikolai Chevalsky. And in 1878, he was on an expedition in Central Europe, which or Central Asia, which would have been the Kazakhstan region, Mongolia, all that. And a local tribe gifted him with a skull and a hide from a, a Shabalsky's horse. So he took all that back with him and the conservator at the Zoological Museum of the Russian Academy of Science recognized that it was not a type of horse that he had ever encountered. And so he named it after Shavalsky. And sadly, at that particular point in history, it was a thing to go hunting for exotic animals. And there was a man named Carl Hagenbeck, who was a German exotic animal collector, and he managed to kill 52 foals. And the thing with the expeditions to catch them was that he, uh, they, they lasted 20 years. It was no notoriously difficult to catch a Shabalski's horse or to kill one. Um, he actually, excuse me, he didn't kill them. He captured them and he wanted them for his own private collection. Um, but they didn't do well in captivity. Um, of course, most wild animals don't if you just capture them and put them in a cage and think they're going to live a life like they lived before. But after World War II, there were only 31 Shavalsky's horses in captivity in Europe, and only nine of them reproduced. So by the 1950s, the population had fallen to 12. And that was when conser conservation groups stepped in. So today, the Shabalski's horses that do exist in the wild are all descendants of the original 12 that conservation groups started working with in the 60s. Uh, so in the 60s, they started the captive breeding programs, and there were eventually 134 Shabalski's horses found in 32 zoos and private parks. Um, in 1969, the last Shavalsky in the wild died, so they were officially extinct in the wild. And this struck me as sad, primarily because I've read about how much horses mean to the Mongolian people. But people my age in Mongolia, who were born in the 70s and 80s, they've never seen one for real. They had never, at this, at that, growing up in the 70s and 80s in Mongolia, Kids would have never seen a Shavalsky's horse in the wild. They had only ever known them from pictures and stories, not from actual experience, because by the 70s, they were extinct in the wild. So um, the, captive breeding, the captive breeding programs continued. And like I said, the, the, all Shavalsky's horses who are alive, that are alive today are descended from those original 12 that were in the captive breeding program. And by 1990, the population had reached oh, 961 
horses in captivity in over 129 institutions in 33 countries on four continents. So you can see that with proper breeding programs, we can help restore the populations of these horses, but it just didn't happen right away because, you know, until genetic science became what it is, you know, scientists didn't know how to breed, uh, how to create captive breeding programs. So why were they endangered? Well, the largest, well, one of the largest reasons they became endangered was because they interbred quite a bit with domestic horses. Um, but it was a lot of, uh, a lot of the reason why they were endangered was because they lost their habitat to grazing livestock. They're grazers. So when they were competing with domesticated livestock, uh, they couldn't compete with that. And of course, along with the loss of grazing habitat comes loss of water because water was being diverted to farms for domesticated livestock. So, and then hunting, hunting, uh, you know, back in the early days, uh, after they were discovered, you know, guys like Carl Hagenbeck wanted to hunt them and have their skins and they wanted to capture them and it just didn't end well for a while for the Shavosky's horse. Now, in 1969, the San Diego Zoo um, had the first uh, Shavosky's horse born there, and they are still working in captive breeding programs today. In fact, I did read that they just had their first Shavosky's horse born in several years. Um, it was either at the end of January or the first part of this month, but it hasn't been too long ago. Um, and in 1982, there was an exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, that led to um, information that aided, that further aided captive breeding programs. Um, and since uh, 1982, there have been over 157 Shavalsky's horses born at the San Diego Zoo. Um, now, the San Diego Zoo partners with um, conservation genetics groups. And one is called Revive and Restore. Now, this is where I think it gets a little bit... I'm not saying I don't support cloning of animals to help repopulate the species, but I can't help but wonder what we are doing to the genetic lines of these animals that could create unseen circumstances in the future and by that I mean like I think about CRISPR technology now this is I'm gonna wander off topic a second here but I'm kind of good about doing that anyway CRISPR technology is gene editing and I've read a lot about it because my niece has a genetic illness she has cystic fibrosis she was diagnosed when she was a very young infant it wasn't something we ever even knew was in our family until she got the fuzzy lollipop, genetically speaking, and ended up with the disease. And you are three times as likely to either carry it or not carry it and not have it than you are to actually have it. It's a one in four chance you'll get it when the genetics line up. So sadly, she got the genetic fuzzy lollipop. So CRISPR gene editing is basically... Okay, if you could isolate 
the cystic fibrosis genes and cut them out of the gene pool, you could cure cystic fibrosis. And I'm personally against CRISPR. And people who know me and know my family's uh, history with genetic disease, they're like, are you, are you an idiot? <laughs> this could cure people like your niece. Why wouldn't you want something that could cure cystic fibrosis so that nobody else would ever have to suffer the way your niece has? Well, yes, I understand and respect that. But to me, you start cutting things out of genes and you start manipulating gene pools. What are you creating in the future that's going to be worse than cystic fibrosis ever was on its worst day? Because to me, nature requires equilibrium. And if you start messing with genes on one side of things, what, you know, we have no idea what we're creating. Could it be a Frankenstein's monster? And that's kind of how I feel about groups like Revive and Restore. I actually went to their website because they have a full workup of all these different animals that they're working to genetically preserve. And the Shabalski's horse is one of them. And they use... Um, they use biotech to uh, clone animals. And it's called genetic rescue. And they define genetic rescue as the process by which the impacts of inbreeding are negated by introducing individuals' genetics from unrelated bloodlines. So, okay, that would work if you had an animal that was not so narrowly genetically diluted like the Shavalsky's horse that you could find separate bloodlines. But the problem is the Shavalsky's horse only descends from 12 individuals. And that's an extraordinarily narrow gene pool to, to work from. So uh, genetic diversity is obviously going to be a problem for the Shavalsky's horse going forward uh, because there just weren't that many of them to work with. Um, so there's no unrelated individuals because all the Shavalsky's horses in existence now are related through the 12 that were originally in the very first conservation efforts. So what they do is they used sperm from a genetically important stallion that was cryopreserved in 1980, and they extracted the DNA and used it to clone a horse. And the cell line that was cloned to create... This horse had, had significantly more genetic variation than any living Shavalsky's horse because it was one of the original 12. And at that point, those 12 had much more genetic diversity than any of them today. But I still wonder how genetic manipulation really works out in the end. I mean, if it is possible to clone horses or whales or dolphins or lizards or honeybees or whatever it is that's endangered I suppose that is an important tool but I just don't know when we start mucking with mother nature like that I mean obviously we've already mucked with mother nature when we've driven these animals to extinction but I just wonder sometimes if in an effort to undo the wrongs that we've done in nature if we aren't necessarily creating something worse I don't know I just I don't know but anyway, the, uh, the cloned horse was named Kurt, and he was named after um, Dr. Kurt Benersky, who was the uh, genetic scientist at the San Diego Zoo who came up with this cloning idea in the 1970s. Um, 
so that is one thing that's being done is cloning and genetic manipulation to try to save these horses um you know another thing is just it's all well and good to breed the horses and release them back into game reserves and national parks and things like that but of course you're going to have to educate the people on how they can protect these horses you know you're going to have to tell them well water is vital to a horse I mean, it's vital to a domesticated horse as well as it is a wild horse. Um, there's one of the cutest videos that Stephanie Powers that I ever saw, a little clip of a video that she did. And it was when she put out a horse care uh, video collection back in the, like, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s or something. And in the clip I've seen, she's talking about how she got her niece a horse and, you know, she was stressing all the, the things that her niece had to do to take care of the horse. Well, her horse put her niece put the horse back in the stall one day and forgot to leave a bucket of water. And Stephanie was like, you know, I called my niece and I told her, you know, what do you think that the horse can just get up in the middle of the night and go to the faucet and get water? You know, you have to leave water with the horse. So and then she tells a story about how the next day she went to check on the horse and her niece had been there first and left like left like four or five buckets of water around the horse because she was being a smart aleck. But, but, I mean, as much as that story stresses how water is important for domestic uh, horses, then clearly uh, part of the conservation of Shabalski's horses has to include uh, water resource protection uh, and grazing habitats. You know, you can't let everything go to farm animals. As, as important as it is for livestock to be able to graze, you have to also protect some land and resources for the wild animals. And then that's true for so many other animals than Shabalski's horses. So hopefully uh, the Mongolians will never have to have a generation of young people who've never seen a Shabalski's horse in the wild. Hopefully that the, uh, the success and, and it doesn't sound like much of a success to say they went from extinct in the wild to critically endangered on the IUCN list, but that is a step in the right direction because, you know, they exist now in the wild. They just are critically endangered as a means by which that they will be, they're labeled as such so that in the future, people will stress the importance of taking care of these horses. So I hope I didn't ramble too much. Sometimes I worry that I just go off on these little tangents and I try to stay focused. Hopefully I did today and hopefully this uh, podcast finds you well and gave you something to think about. And of course, as always, until next time, I wish you all the very best.